There is no health without mental health. Hi, welcome to Beyond Madness. I'm your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist, and this podcast series features psychiatrists in conversation with myself discussing mental health issues, issues that affect our society on a daily basis. Emotional issues can affect you or someone in your life at any time, and the intention of this podcast series is to give you a better understanding of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Today's topic is stimulant medication and cognitive enhancement. Is it ethical? Stimulant medication, cognitive enhancement, ethics, all in one sentence. So that's a, a big topic. On today's podcast, I have the pleasure of hosting two experienced colleagues, Dr. Renata Skuman and Dr. Chris Foster. Renata is a psychiatrist working in private practice in Belleville. She's also an associate professor of leadership at the University of Stellenbosch Business School. She's the convener of the South African Society of Psychiatrists Special Interest Group for ADHD, ADHD being Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and she's also involved in the Goldilocks and the Bear ADHD Project, which raises money for the self-named foundation, and uh, basically they offer ADHD screening and early intervention for underserved communities at schools. Chris is a psychiatrist and currently head of the clinical unit or head of clinical unit at Worcester Regional Hospital. He obtained a master's in philosophy uh, or a master of philosophy and applied ethics at the University of Stellenbosch, where he served on the health research ethics committee for a number of years. And he currently serves on the management committee of the Center for Medical Ethics and Law at the same university, with one of his current interests being biomedical ethics. So, Two very experienced and learned colleagues. Renata and Chris, welcome, and thank you for making the time to join me in conversation. Renata, I'm going to start out with you. When we speak about stimulant medication, what are we talking about, and why do we typically prescribe such medication in psychiatry? Christopher, so if we look at the registered users of the so-called stimulant medication, it mostly is prescribed for patients with ADHD. Right. However, there is other conditions that we can also use it for, such as narcolepsy and also off-label uses for apathy, fatigue, and also treatment-resistant depression, but mostly for ADHD. Okay, so we've got very specific indications and essentially, we are using them to reverse deficits, so to speak, associated with diagnosable conditions. So to treat patients, and obviously as medical practitioners, that's our core function. But what about cognitive enhancement? Because obviously, these medications are understood to do precisely that, but more specifically within the context of ADHD for example. So, so Chris, when we speak about cognitive enhancement, because I know that you've, you've written about that previously, what do we mean by that? Okay, so I think we, we have to distinguish between just treatment and then enhancement. Right. So treatment, obviously, is where you try and rectify a disorder or disease back to a, a state of relative normality, whereas enhancement refers to trying to achieve a state that is almost better than what would be the average or the normal. Right. Um, so cognitive enhancement would, would imply that you're trying to improve cognitive functions uh, above to what is the normal state. So we live in a world that's very uh, performance-driven. 
Uh, one could say we also live in an age which is quite appearance obsessed. Physical enhancement in terms of beauty is, is, is well established and sought after. Maybe even a requirement in certain instances. Performance enhancement is seen certainly amongst athletes, although that's illegal. And of course, it struck me that amongst men, performance enhancement for sexual prowess is also very much available albeit uh, legally. So, I mean, is cognitive enhancement not just the next natural progression where we live in a society where there is enhancement happening almost as a norm? I wouldn't maybe say it's a progression because it's been happening for or decades probably even for longer than, than we might be aware of because yeah. attempts at cognitive enhancement have been happening for at least 100 years. The days, earlier days when, when cocaine was, was discovered and the various amphetamines, etc. Yes. But I think maybe what it refers to is a drive in society for people to try and enhance themselves. Right. I mean, do you think that uh, there is increasing pressure in society for that kind of enhancement because of the necessity for performance and limited places, for example, at university? Is there a push for that kind of intervention, so to speak? I think that there definitely is a push, and I don't, I don't think we always understand the, the amount of pressure that students and, and, and scholars are under to try and, as you say, maybe to achieve better marks to get a bursary or get into a specific academic program. And right. most likely, in many cases, cognitive enhancement is an attempt to try and, and achieve this. Right. I mean, Renata, do you have concerns about that? where we might be prescribing in that way? There's two things, well, actually three things. For me, the one thing is about just making inequality in society worse because only a certain part of the right. population have access and finances to certain medical care, to certain medications, and aren't we aggravating the inequality? So that's the more the general concern I have. The second concern I have is if we start to use medication off-label, the way that doctors coded on the prescriptions is the statistics mm. and the data that's captured by medical funders and how they then establish benefits for patients. So if there's a sudden rise in scripts for the stimulant medications right. and the code that we use for ADHD F90.0 is then used out of context. This increased yes. the risk right. for the medical insurance, which might lead, then lead to the patients that really need the medication not having access to it. And the third thing is that also, people that's using it for performance enhancement might be under the false impression in terms of what the medication really can do for them and what not. So it's perhaps important just to look at what is the real benefit of it. Is there any real benefit? And how the other thing is, how often is it used? Well, I think that's a very important question because, you know, my reading of the evidence suggests a somewhat a, a mixed picture that there may be more of a perception of improved performance if you use these stimulant drugs than actual performance. So what is your impression and what is your understanding of that? Because I think that's very important. We've got to put the facts in front of anybody asking for such medication. 
Christopher, it's very interesting is there's a perception and that's maybe the bias that's as well in what we call anchoring in terms of how often we think our colleagues are using it. So you would often ask medical students or any students or if we look at the international studies is what is your perception? How does everyone use it? And and often the students would say, yes, everyone is using it. But if you actually look at the data, which most of the studies show is that the real use of it during a given year is only about 3%. So if I think everyone is using it, I will be more prone to using it as well. A very interesting other fact is that when we look on a neuropsychological level in terms of increased performance, it only enhanced performance with about 2%. Now, if you look at 2% on your grade marks, that's not a lot. So it doesn't make a real difference. The real difference is in terms of alertness and maybe even a little bit of a placebo effect. So if I have been using this, I am feeling more awake and I know that technically I should now perform better and therefore I put an increased effort and therefore the enhanced outcome. So it's not really, really clear. Do I just actually try harder? Also, the other thing is if you compare the stimulants with other wake-promoting agents like modafinil, they have exactly the same outcome in terms of the cognitive enhancement. So it's more the alertness that seems to be playing a role than what the neuropsychological functioning is really improving. So there seems to be... I, maybe the use of the word myth is too strong, but there seems to be an aura around these kinds of medications that are used for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder as providing some kind of cognitive advantage when in fact in a normal individual this may not be quite as anticipated. Would, would that be a reasonable reading of the situation? That would definitely be reasonable for me to see it that way. And there's a very interesting study that was published in 2018 by Meyer et al. And they looked at the meta-analysis of studies, which included about 100,000 students right. across 15 different countries. And what they again found that the prevalence of the use in a given year for non-ADHD purposes is only about 3%, contrary to the perception, as I mentioned. And then once again... Um, there was not sustained benefits. So initially, the students would report that, you know, the, the stimulants does help them. But then so did they initially report that beta blockers help them, modafinil help them, um, right. non-prescription stimulants, even cannabis. Right. But obviously, the, okay. the advantage didn't last. Well, I think that's very important because, as I said, the perceptions are such that there's an inclination – to seek out these these kinds of drugs. But Chris, just coming back to you, I mean, this issue of access and potential inequality, I mean, does that become an ethical issue? The thing is that there are actually numerous ethical issues involved in this whole debate. Um, so the inequality is merely one. And yes. I suppose if you want to do a bit of a jump of logic, then where do you draw the line? If you say because of the risk of inequality, the use of stimulants for cognitive enhancement should not be allowed, then what about some students having access to fancy laptops? Other students don't. Some students have access to good quality libraries. Others don't. Do you then take it as far as saying, but then we should equalize the playing field. Nobody should have access. Um, So one should be careful to use that as as your, your deciding argument. I also just want to bring something in. When you started off, you said the evidence out there seems to be a bit 
in doubt. So there's there's lots of studies showing there's very limited efficacy, but right. there are also a number of studies showing that it does have an effect. Right. They also talked about um, hot cognition and cold cognition, which it seems some of these drugs actually do do work on on various levels. I think one should maybe determine what the, the major ethical issues are. Because if you want to say that enhancement per se is wrong, I yes. think that's an argument that one should explore. Right. But to focus on a specific drug, I think one should be careful because then you're missing the bigger picture. Well, I think the issue of enhancement is an interesting one because at the end of the day, it's an established uh, situation where there is enhancement in, in, in so many areas of life and in medicine. I think the issue for us as, as medical practitioners is that essentially we treat illness. Whereas here, we are being requested potentially to prescribe a medication which would be to enhance normality or baseline functioning of an individual who doesn't suffer from a particular illness. And I think for me, that may be one of the difficulties for a medical practitioner. I'm not sure how you would respond to that. Well, one of the arguments um, relating to whether enhancement should be allowed or not is if you can maybe think back many decades ago when you were still doing general medicine, yes. did you ever inoculate young children? Sure. I mean, it is an absolutely accepted part of medicine. Yes. But all inoculation vaccination does is it enhances normal um, immunological function in, in any child. So that argument, again, there are counter arguments. Well, I suppose I would take it outside of the individual benefit and look at benefit to society. So I think when we speak about inoculations, vaccinations, boosting immune systems, etc., as we know from decades and decades of usage, there are benefits to society. Here we're talking more about potential individual benefits. And so my question would be, if we could show that such enhancement was of benefit to society, might that shift the argument more in favor of usage no i would i would agree with you if there's definite and across the board societal benefits then it is something that i sh i think should much more actively be promoted and investigated but again um the possibility that it helps for a certain amount of people and maybe for some people it, it holds benefit one cannot discount that so would you say for example surgeons neurosurgeons, uh, air traffic controllers, people whose concentration has to be 100% all the time based on the kind of work they are doing, would they be potentially target groups where this kind of uh, enhancement would be of benefit to society? May I say something there, especially with you mention about neurosurgeons? Yes. If you think about the possible side effects of the medication, of struggling with sleep, of appetite suppression, even of a tremor. Yes. I would be <laughs> very hesitant having my neurosurgeon um, take take that. And he's not eating the whole day because his appetite is suppressed and you in any case can't think clearly then and maybe have a bit of a tremor, which we wouldn't have had previously. I would then rather argue if we go that way, that some of the mm. non-stimulants may be a better option. At the same time, if you look mm. at the principle of value, and yes. I do believe that 
value is the ethical obligation that we have in terms of improving value for patients. And if you look at the value calculations, it's outcomes over costs. So we should aim to improve outcomes, but not increasing costs. So perhaps there's alternative ways that we can improve cognitive functioning or can enhance a population's cognitive levels or functioning without incurring unnecessary costs. And then I would uh, aim for maybe public intervention in terms of activity level, for example, or in terms of good nutrition, which I believe can be more crucial. For example, if you look at a child, a hungry child can't concentrate. So what is more important, giving the child medication or giving the child food? And I think that we just need to be clear, when you speak about costs, we're not talking financial. Well, financial is included. I think direct costs, so in terms of medication, indirect costs also is um, the loss of productivity and then the intangible costs in terms of quality of life. So cost for me is the whole conglomerate of different types of costs. I suppose one of the concerns that I have is that these uh, drugs are seen as almost without problems. And I think the one thing that we do need to emphasize, and I think you've touched on that, is what are the side effects? What are the potential consequences of either excessive use, misuse, or just use in somebody uh, who might be inclined towards, let's say, cardiac problems, for instance? What are your thoughts on that in terms of where the ethics fit in? Because obviously, you know, we want to do good, we don't want to do harm, but I'm not convinced that the understanding is that these agents are not, I'm going to use a a whimsical term, but they're not smarties. These are powerful medications. What would your thoughts be on that in terms of the messaging? No, I agree with you. And I think I I would maybe rephrase it and not a statement on how the decisions should be made. Um, Yes. For me, it's more about balancing efficacy against safety. So if there was a major advantage and major uh, proven efficacy for these drugs, then one can, in a sense, tolerate or accept a certain amount of risk. Right. But if if these drugs uh, do pose specific uh, um, health-related or other related risks and the, effic- the proven efficacy is at best moderate, then it would be very difficult to, to justify its use. Now, on the one hand, these drugs, they are stimulants. There is definitely a risk of abuse. And, I mean, there are numerous cases of abuse. Maybe right. not um, – to the extent that, that maybe some of the opiates and, and those kind of drugs are being abused, but there is a risk. Sure. But you also have to consider that millions of children worldwide are using stimulants and they don't suffer any major side effects over years. But one has to be careful in, in, in just knocking these drugs completely, saying that they're way too dangerous, one should never use them. I think one has to find a balance, and that, that's why this type of discussion is so important. Is there a difference if we're looking at different population groups in terms of age and also in terms of health status? And when I say health status, I also mean not just the physical health, but in terms of whether they have a diagnosable condition or not. Those considerations surely need to come into the equation. Yeah, I think obviously if there's a diagnosable condition and this is the accepted treatment, then there's a lot of justification to 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 use it and then to balance it with potential right. mild, moderate risks. It becomes more difficult if you are not treating a diagnosable disorder or condition, then you really have to be quite convinced that it is actually a safe intervention or a safe drug to use. 
No, exactly. So that's the issue for me is that the benchmark is somewhat higher where you're not treating a condition, whereas if you were not to treat it, the consequences would be dire for the kid. Whereas here we're dealing with individuals who don't have a diagnosable condition. So therefore, what is the benchmark that one sets in terms of safety? And I think there is a difference between populations with diagnosable conditions that need to be treated versus individuals who don't have a diagnosable condition but simply want to be enhanced. I think that's the the point I wanted to make, Renata. Christopher, so on that, I completely agree with Chris, and I, I agree with the idea of a higher benchmark as well, because the medication has been proven to be safe and effective. It's one of the most effective medications we have in our psychiatric armamentarium for the treatment of condition. The problem is that right. the the methods or the process right. to obtaining this, if you do not have a psychiatric condition, it, it it's it's leaning towards the wrong way. So if we see a patient that we are concerned for diagnosis and we really fully evaluate for the diagnosis and also potential comorbidities, it's an hour, two hour or more process. But the pay or the people, the individuals that want to use this for cognitive enhancement, which do not have a diagnosable condition, right. they run into the GP's office, get a script and run out. You know, there isn't a comprehensive assessment. So where our benchmark should be higher than before prescription, and you must make double sure that there's no contraindications or the risk for, you know, adverse events, we actually are, I would want to say, negligent in that effect. Well, I think that's a very interesting point. And I think, again, that comes back to the issue of perception, both perception as we've spoken about in terms of enhanced performance, but also perception of, of, of safety, like this is just a risk-free endeavor where you take this medication, your performance is enhanced, everybody's happy, and there you go. So I do think those are serious considerations that are probably not necessarily discussed sufficiently I don't know if both of you would agree with that, but that's kind of what I'm getting out of this discussion. Chris? Yeah, I think one must also be careful not to, to throw out the baby with the bathwater. A GP who just prescribes this medication without a proper assessment, I mean, th now we're talking about one of the different aspects of, of unethical behavior. That's not acceptable. Um, but if there's a proper investigation, examination, history taking, etc., the issue changes. Right. So... Um, Again, I think it's part of the broader debate that, that, that should be had on how much investigation is needed. Um, and then the big question is whether cognitive enhancement at all is ethical or unethical. So I think what we're talking about is the assessment process en route to the potential prescribing of such an agent for performance, in this instance, cognitive enhancement. Would, would that be correct in terms of what I'm understanding? Yeah, I would agree with that. Renata? Yeah, and the other thing, we, we are trying to do evidence-based medicine. That's right. how we make our decisions. That's how we should practice. If you deviate from that, right. obviously psychiatry is also a little bit of art, not only an exact science. Yes. But you, you start to, to, to push the boundaries and you start to potentially go down different ethical debates then, as Chris has mentioned, yes. you know, in terms of overall treatment of a patient. Um, the irony, what I also see in practice, yes. many of the students or adults that, that do receive the medication from another practice, whether it's specialist or not, yes. for cognitive enhancement 
or for cognitive symptoms secondary to another untreated condition, arrive and they struggle with insomnia, they struggle with panic attacks, and then these benzos added in the mix. And in the end, it makes no clinical sense to try to use a stimulant on the one hand and then you add a benzodiazepine on the other side. You know, because for me, treating side effects with other medications is also not good clinical practice. But that's not necessarily an ethical debate. Well, I... I think it actually moves into the issue of polypharmacy in somebody who's actually not got a diagnosable condition. And I suppose, Chris, from an ethical point of view, that's, that's a, a, a kind of a slippery slope in terms of pushing someone down the line towards potentially having problems where they didn't have any to start with. Yeah, I mean, the whole issue of causing new problems in somebody who didn't have them before, I mean, now you're really sl- slipping quite quickly down that slope. Exactly. And so, I mean, that for me is, again, an issue which is not generally raised in in the literature as I've seen it. But uh, just getting back to what Renata said, I've certainly seen, you know, where individuals have underlying anxiety being pushed into to panic attacks, not to mention sleep issues. And, of course, what about the issues in terms of mood, irritability, aggression, hostility? Um, Renata, would you care to comment on that? Yeah, I'm not too concerned about that. I know that there's also written about the concert of crash, but that refers to the end of the day, moodiness, right. feeling a bit down when, when the medication has worked out. So it's short-lived and it's also usually a combination of factors. Everyone is a bit more tired at the end of the day. If sure. you don't eat properly during the day, you will become more ratty. And that's often a problem that we see, especially in the children and teenagers where right. because of the appetite suppression, they don't eat properly and then they are more you know, moody at the end of the day. But if you look at the evidence for it, you know, the the medication is not going to trigger right. depression. Okay. Um, but it can obviously aggravate pre-morbid symptoms, or there might be other reasons why a patient is more moody. But some of the agents are more prone to it than others. Right. I was more referring to irritability than depression per se. I just want to pose maybe a a, a, a question that is I don't know if it's controversial, but with the emergence of attention deficit disorder as opposed to attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, have we potentially lowered the threshold for diagnosis and prescribing of stimulant drugs? Christopher, it's the same thing. It's still technically according to the DSM-5, it's ADHD, and then we specify inattentive type, hyperactive type. So one of the things that I often do is I correct patients when they enter and they say, oh, no, but I don't have ADHD, I only have ADD. I tell them you do have ADHD, predominantly inattentive type. So final question, do you see the increased and potentially excessive use of electronic media as contributing to what appears to be a lot of attentional problems that we see amongst children and adolescents. Christy, you want to start because I can say a lot. (laughs) (laughs) That's a clinical question and I've just thrown it straight in. It's like a little little grenade. Yeah, I I mean, Renata will probably be able to give you the science behind it, but subjectively, I I think it does. Um, because the one thing that social media and electronic media does, it, it requires rapid shifts in attention, and you can be busy with whatever you do, and then suddenly your cell phone goes off. Now you have to switch attention, etc. So I think, especially in people who, who might might have some symptoms of, of attention deficit problems, it really can aggravate these problems. Okay, Renata. 
I can mention that it specifically works on the dopamine, but also, well, one of the main effects it has on dopamine, because if you scroll and if you multitask, you have dopamine peaks and you can later on become really addicted to it and it decrease your natural dopamine, which is so important for right. attention, concentration and motivation. So there's been ample studies roughly since 2013 and especially around 2017 that's recently been updated in terms of the direct impact on working memory and learning, how it's deteriorating and how the population's attention span is decreased. Um, what is interesting there, if you look at recent studies now to see what has happened since last year was lockdown, yes. that at this stage, we use up to, in study shows, 56 different apps and websites per day. That's remarkable. And that we tend to switch between them roughly 300 times a day. And we're visiting our cell phones more than a thousand times a day. And that is decreasing your cognitive resources with more than 20%. Okay. So basically the message I'm getting, and I'm not sure if I'm correct, it's uh, less stimulation and maybe less medication, potentially. I'm not saying that that's the sort of closing uh, 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 sentence, but I do understand that these environments that we now operate in where there is hyper-stimulation are also contributing, and so we need to look beyond medication and look at environmental issues that could be impacting on attention. Would you agree or, or disagree? Absolutely. Chris, would you agree with that? I do. All right, so what I really want to say is that, you know, new frontiers bring new opportunities, but also new challenges. And I think these need to be addressed before we cross the frontier. Renata and Chris, I want to thank you for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure hosting you. And uh, I suppose there is so much more that we could have spoken about, but uh, all good things come to an end. And so thank you. And to the audience, remember... There is no health without mental health. I hope that uh, today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave.